can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction. Welcome to the sixth Football Insiders podcast, the podcast home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. We've got something a little different today. In our previous episodes, we've spoken with authors Trevor Thompson, Jason Goldsmith, Andrew Howe, Texi Smith and Peter Kunz. But today we're speaking with two people who really helped define insiders in the title of our podcast, Football Insiders. Starting with the man who actually gives us the intro to the show each week, journalist, author, commentator and lifelong fan of Manchester City, Simon Hill. Simon, welcome. Good to be with you, Benita. Always happy to talk to you. Uh, always. It's a shame we can't sort of do it face-to-face with a cup of coffee and yeah. a banana bread. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what we normally do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the past few months have been quite a ride for you and your fellow Fox Sports people um, with football and, in fact, all sport. Um, simply being cut off until further notice, although that's an experience many have had in in terms of their working life. Um, it, it's you're in such a public part of it with with sport being such an important part of what we do and what we love. How have you tried to deal with that and keep busy from a personal perspective? Um, well, I've been fortunate in some ways in that, you know, I've had little sort of bits of things to keep me going. I've written a column or two for World Soccer Magazine, uh, for whom I'm the correspondent. Uh, as some people may know, I, I was lucky enough to call the K-League game between John Book Motors and Suwon Blue Wings for the K-League's official social media channels, Twitter and YouTube, on Friday nights. Um and, yeah, involved in various discussions about <laughs> the future of the game, uh, whatever that future may hold. So it's not been too bad. Uh, obviously, you know, there are times when you really miss just the regular routine of preparing for games and calling games and, you know, being involved in the football world. It's all I've known for almost all of my work in life. So I do miss it, um, but I'm still involved in it. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long before we're back to normal. I'll just pick you up on one of those things to begin with, and that's the K-League, because it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. you. We famously saw you tweet that you were calling that game from your living room and looking at a laptop. How was that experience? Different. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the first time I've done that. Uh, very odd sort of walk into your sofa and calling a game, <laughs> uh, but this is, the, you know, this is the brave new world, uh, this new digital technology, uh, which in terms of the pictures actually worked quite well. Unfortunately, we had s- some difficulty with the audio, which I think, you know, if we were to do it again, and I'm hoping we will, although there's no confirmation yet, uh, you know, we can, we can iron those issues out. But I think that's only natural when you, you're, you know, you're using new technology. There are going to be some teething issues uh, and we certainly had those, but um, look, you know, from a personal perspective, it was just great to get back behind the microphone, actually calling a game of football because it had been uh, over two months since I'd done one. So, you know, hopefully I did uh, an okay job and uh, yeah, maybe in the future I'll get to do it again, but certainly very different. And I think, you know, in general terms, maybe we're going to go down this path because 
you know, clearly that makes it more economical for broadcasters um, uh, to employ people such as me in commentary. Uh, and this new digital technology is, is something that I think all sports are exploring to, to a large degree um, for whatever the future holds post-COVID-19. Well, on that, I mean, one of the things that many people have been calling for during this hiatus is that we reset the game. And in some ways, some of that may be forced upon us because of, for instance, the relationship with the the host broadcaster and where that's going to go. Um, Many people have been calling for this whole idea of looking at a different type of broadcast arrangement. Um, do you do you think that's the best way that we can we can deal with this for the A League and the W League and everything else we have to offer? Look, I, I certainly think it's it's a possibility. If it's not the the entire solution, then it could be part of the solution. Uh, as I say, I think all sports are looking at this new technology now and and seeing what they can do with it. Of course, you know the big problem is is that uh, the host broadcaster for the A League, my employers, Fox Sports, at the moment pay fifty seven million dollars a year for the right to broadcast the competition. Um, is, is new technology going to deliver the same dividend? And if not, how do the clubs and the FFA and the game itself, you know, fill that financial black hole, if you like? So I, I think it's far from being a done deal as yet, but certainly I think it's something that all sports are investigating to a large degree. Uh, it, it, digital technology is going to play an increasing part in uh, sports broadcasting um, going future, going forward. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's certainly a possibility, but uh, is it 100% definitive? Not at the moment, because I think there are, you know, some issues to, to be ironed out before we, we, we get to that point. Yeah, and as you mentioned in relation to the K-League K- game that you've called, um, the extent to which the quality is the same. I mean, we're, we're now used to a particular type of quality through what Fox Sports has done over the years, and it's doubtful that that would be the same level um, in any of these streaming alternatives. Uh, well, yes, yeah, certainly in the short term because, you know, the technology is new. Um, it, it's still, to a large degree, experimental in many ways. Um, so there are going to be flaws. There, there's going to be tweaks, um, you know, hopefully it won't be too long before the technology catches up. And in the interim, you know, maybe people are going to have to accept that uh, the quality of the broadcast is not quite what they're used to. Uh, and I guess it's it also depends on what, uh, you know, the game, and obviously the, the game that we're talking about here is football, uh, it depends on the extent that the game can afford the new technology and uh, whether it can afford to invest in, in, in the best possible uh, broadcast facilities or whether it has to in the interim you know take a few shortcuts because uh, that's what the budget is uh, look these are questions for you know administrators and um, boards of directors who have their their fingers on the purse strings which I don't of course and I, I don't pretend to have any great insight into, into what they're thinking or, or what they're exploring at the moment but it seems pretty clear to me from the discussions that are going around, not just in football terms, but in, in sport terms in general, that this is something that is being explored and investigated to a, a huge degree because, you know, that sport in, in the same as, as the rest of life has to move with the times. And, you know, clearly this is to a greater or lesser extent the future. 
What would you do if you are, I mean, I, I take your point that you're in a particular, very different business. You're not on the FFA board or the FFA Congress or sitting in the, the big chair in the corner of in James Johnson's office, but if you could wave a magic wand, what are sort of the top two, three, four or five things you'd want to see in Australian football? <laughs> Thanks for the curveball question, Marita. Um Look, I think first of all, obviously, financial sustainability for the game in general. You know, that, that's our biggest problem. Let's let's be brutally honest about it. Uh, the game ebbs and flows because the bottom line is we don't have enough money. Um, we all know that Australia has some uh, pretty challenging issues in terms of its geography, in terms of three other codes of football plus cricket, uh, the lack of media coverage, etc. So. You know, I think if I could wave a magic wand, then the game as a whole would win lotto and, uh, you know, to the tune of about 50 million, and then we might be okay for a few years. So that's the first thing. I I think in terms of of more specific stuff, uh, I'd like to see the game reorganised. I know we've had a governance war for three years, and I know people have governance fatigue, and that's totally understandable. But unfortunately, until the game gets the governance right, it's going to continue to struggle. And I don't think it's right at the moment. Um, I, I think that there needs to be a reorganisation, um, uh, particularly regarding the state federations, whether that means that they're uh, completely removed or become um, regional bureaus of the FFA or, or, or advisory boards from the states. I think that's certainly one thing that needs to be looked at. I think you know we double up on an awful lot of roles. That's not to say everything that the states do or does uh, is wrong or, or unnecessary or, uh, you know, surplus to requirements. But I, I certainly think that's one area that needs to be looked at. In terms of the actual structure of the league, um, I, I would love to see a second division. Whether that's feasible or not, I don't know. With eventually, uh, you know, leading on to promotion and relegation, I think that's probably one of the missing ingredients that uh, the game uh, really needs uh, to, to, to stimulate interest and to bring the whole football family in together. And the final one uh, in a short-term uh, regard is really the return of active support. I mean, that, that was our big point of difference, and we had it in spades brilliantly up until about 2015. Uh, and then unfortunately, for reasons best known to the FFA, uh, that they effectively killed it off, which <laughs> to me is just suicide but uh, anyway you know it happens and now we're, we're five years down the line and um, for me we need to get those uh, active supporters back and, and start to recreate the, the sort of unique atmosphere that only football uh, can bring because we miss it and at the moment you know when I go to early games not that I've been to one for a while obviously due to COVID but uh, you know it's it's a rather sterile experience and, uh, and that's that's really sad it breaks my heart to be honest um, because we had such a good thing going, and um, unfortunately, we uh, we pulled, pushed the self destruct button not for the first time in our history. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was twenty fifteen. I think it started when with that article that uh, published the names inappropriately yes. of of people. Yeah. Um, if that was a curveball question, I have to say you handled it a bit like Ian Botham might have been expected to handle <laughs> a curveball. Um, to, to use a to use a different um, anal- a different sporting analogy, let's get back to sport itself. When we left the A League uh, a couple of months ago, um, 
in the normal course of events, the weekend that we've just had um, would have been the A-League Grand Final. Um, when we stopped, Sydney FC was way ahead on 48 points, Melbourne City next with 40, followed by Wellington Phoenix on 36 and Brisbane Raw on 35. Who do you think would have won? Um, well, it's probably difficult to look past Sydney FC given they were, you know, by far the most consistent team in the competition. I mean, I think they would certainly have won the Premier's plate, that's for sure. But of course, in Australia, we have uh, finals and the grand final. Um, and that's a little bit more of a lottery, as we saw in season uh, 17, 18, I think it was, that Sydney were, again, you know, so dominant, but lost out to Melbourne victory after extra time in the finals. So you, you never quite can tell in terms of finals football because it's a different beast entirely. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say I'd, I'd, I'd have to uh, – I couldn't really go past Sydney FC. I think that would be unfair on them given the season they've had. If you can remember, who was impressing you during the season as either a player or a coach or what What do you think were some of the highlights of the season? Well, well certainly one of the uh, surprises of the season was Wellington Phoenix. And um, I remember at the start of the campaign, I think Wolfram Tallow when he took over, I think only had seven contracted players and they'd lost Roy Krishna, they'd lost David Williams, they'd lost Sarpreet Singh. And you looked at their squad, uh, even when they started, you know, adding players here and there, and, th and you thought, Geez, where are the goals going to come from? Um, and I think that they could struggle this year. Now, it's to Ufuk Tale's huge credit that uh, not only have, you know, they've been competitive, but they're, they're up there challenging. <coughs> Excuse me. And some of his signings have been absolutely inspired, uh, particularly, the, you know, their front line of Willis's um, Davila, who I think is a terrific player, one of the best in yep. the competition. Uh, the arrival of Gary Hooper took a little bit uh, of time to get fit and get going. David Ball, um, the emergence of, of great youngsters like Callum McCowart and particularly Liberato Kakachi, the left-back, who I think is outstanding. I don't think he'll be in the alley very long. So I think that they've been a team that surprised me, but in, in a very positive way. And I really enjoy watching them. So, yeah, well done, Huffy, in his first season as a head coach. Um, if it wasn't for the fact that Sydney FC was so far ahead under Steve Corica, I'd say he was a, a, a big candidate for Coach of the Year. He's done a brilliant job. Yeah, I think that's very true. A lot of people have, have said how surprised, pleasantly surprised they are with Wellington Phoenix and what a great job he's done. That's a good call. What about in the Premier League? Um, now, you, everyone knows you're a Manchester City fan, <laughs> um, but Liverpool are 25 points ahead when they had to stop. With um, Manchester City, sort of there was daylight and then there was Manchester City, um, but there's nine rounds to go. If you can take off your City scarf for a moment and wear your fair-minded journalist cap instead, do you follow, do you think Liverpool deserve, if, if the Premier League could not be played again this season. Do you think Liverpool deserves to be named champions, or do you are you more in line with Karen Brady at West Ham? No, of course they deserve to be named champions. Um, it would be ridiculous to suggest otherwise. Um, you know, even with my City scarf on, I can recognise that Liverpool will be the best team by far this season. I think the issue is it's it, it, handing Liverpool the Premier League title is the easy bit. Um, although I must say that the asterisk next to their name in the history books would be funny for time immemorial. But uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a by the by. Let, giving Liverpool the trophy is the easy bit. The difficult bit is who goes down and who comes up. And whichever way the Premier League goes, if they relegate you know, the three teams that are in those spots at the moment, 
I think they're facing legal action similar with the championship because there's so much money at stake that to arbitrarily promote or relegate based on current positions would be, I think, massively unfair on, on those clubs who are in those positions at the moment. So I've heard a suggestion that, you know, for one season only, they might not relegate any teams from the Premier League and promote two or three from the championship, go with a 22-team Premier League or 23 teams for one season only, then relegate six or five next year. That might be a fairer solution because I think otherwise the, the financial side of thing, which is so vast, of course, as we know in the Premier League, is going to lead to a lot of litigation. I don't think the Premier League can afford that when they've lost you know, the best part of a billion dollars due to this uh, stoppage for COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And what about in terms of the Champions League um, places as well at the top at the top end? I mean, putting aside Liverpool and, and Man City, who would be fairly much assured of, of those first two spots. Yeah, again, that's a tricky one because there's a lot of money at stake. Um, <laughs> I mean, whether you you conduct a mini uh, competition at some point in the future when we're allowed to resume between. You know, those those teams, accepting that Liverpool and Man City are going to be in a championship, probably Leicester as well, I think, um, without having checking the, the points tallies. But I, I think it was a, pretty much a, a race between three or four clubs for that final Champions League spot. And, of course, the other big question mark is with Manchester City's Champions League ban still in the offing, does that stand? Or, you know, is that put to one side for 12 months? I mean... It's such a head-scratcher for everybody in charge of those competitions. I have no idea how they resolve any of this, and I don't pretend to have the solutions. But I have heard that they, you know, they're thinking about a mini sort of Champions League tournament to decide the winners this year at some point, maybe even as late as August. Maybe they could do the same with uh, the Premier League to decide which teams go into that tournament next year. Yeah, and on that, of course, with the Manchester City, the potential ban... Um, and they've still got a, a legal fight on that issue as well. So who knows what will come out of that. Um, Simon, as you know, we've, we're speaking with two people in this particular episode of Football Insiders, so I'd like to say thank you for your time today. Um, the other thing we know about you, not least because Andrew Howe referenced it when we spoke with him on Football Insiders a few weeks back, is that not only do you play in a band yourself, uh, but you're a fairly devoted heavy metal fan. Indeed. So. <laughs> With that in mind, and as we close our little first part of the chat today, can you share with us something that you're listening to at the moment and we'll use it as our musical interlude? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure you want this. Um, I'm actually listening at the moment. It's, it's an old album, but I, I just love the track. It's a track by Rammstein, a uh, German heavy metal band, uh, called Mein Herz brennt, My Heart Burns. Uh, it's a great heavy rock track. So if you can find that, I hope your listeners enjoy it. <laughs> we, we'll dig it up from the archives somehow and we'll play a little bit as we segue to speak to our next guest. Simon, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and hear from you. Um, like many others, I hope it's not too long until we hear you and your deep knowledge and experience um, that you bring to the game again soon, commencing with the A-League reboot or the Socceroos or whoever. Thank you very much. And here's a short excerpt from Simon's choice of music before we introduce our next guest. Thanks very much, Vanessa.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that musical interlude courtesy of Simon Hill. Um, we've now got a change of pace in more ways than one, speaking with one of the most experienced sports administrators in the country who has worked in AFL and football with marketing and brand agencies and he's played football. He's a former colleague of mine and a friend, Archie Fraser. Welcome, Archie. Oh, hi, Benita. Welcome uh, and good to be here. Thank you. I'm going to jump straight into some big issues, Archie. <laughs> um, you're one of many who wants to see the game use this break to reset itself. What do you see as the biggest issues to address? Well, I, I think that uh, really we've got to make sure that we commercialise the game in the in the best possible way from this, uh, you know, what's now occurred, which has, I suppose, forced us to reset the game. So I think the two biggest issues are, one, getting the governance right, and two, getting the commercialization right and, and the re-engagement to our fan base and our participation base, which I'm not sure that we've ever fully um, been able to do. And, and, and probably as a third example, as part of that commercialization, I think the game's got to grow some proper assets um, in the middle and, and ultimately you know, through the states as well. And I think we've been pretty... Um, uh, average at that in terms of m measuring a business business success or or the growth of the game. So I would say uh, assets, um, the right structure to take the game forward, and the right cost structure, uh, the commercialisation of it. And uh, uh, I think there's a massive opportunity to reset that right now, given the financial global financial situation. Now it's interesting that you should mention re-engagement of fans because Simon hit on that as well um, just earlier in our discussion today it, and had made the point that we haven't really re-engaged fans at least since 2015 when we had that newspaper article which named fans inappropriately but there is still a, a there's a very big job there but overhanging all of that really is the broadcast deal and the commercialization of the game um, it hangs ominously at the moment over the heads of FFA and the A-League clubs what would you like to see happen? Well, I think the risk is now that the A-League has broken away and, and, I, and I, I was an advocate for that. So I, I, I certainly, I do think that the people running the A-League generally should have been, should be able to run a better um, top-end game league um, competition than than with it being just part of the, the FFA. So I, I think, first of all, that's been a, a positive thing. The timing of it, obviously, is, is more difficult now, given uh, that we just, you know, obviously, High and I have gone, and that's been talked about for a few months now, and obviously, officially, was announced yesterday, uh, six million out of the game. So it, it probably, and the TV deal with Fox doesn't look um, like it will be ongoing at the same level uh, or anything near the same level and I think that's happened globally with all TV rights so uh, there's there's a big opportunity to I suppose if we we continue to talk about the two million people that play the game and we continue to talk about the 550,000 people who play the game um, therefore we probably have to start identifying and connecting directly with those people who are passionate about the game and I don't mean by sending them an email through the football family website I mean actually asking them to follow our game, watch our game at whatever level that might be so long as it's a competitive product and a, and a product that they want to watch and engage in and probably test the fact of just how sticky those those players and fans really are. I think that would be a really good starting point because um, at the same time if we did that and we took effectively our TV rights inside and did what a lot of um, codes around the world um, are certainly either doing or considering, um, I do think we'd be building... Uh, a very strong asset long term 
that a lot of media organizations or rights organizations would want to invest in us in the next two, three, four, five years. So, you know, we could build an asset that we really was fully engaged to the fan base and the player base. Um, we could potentially monetize that, even if it was a very low level of amount of money on a monthly subscription basis or whatever, um, develop our own content and effectively then sell that content off. Um, and, that, and by mean that content, I'm talking about, you know, we have Socceroos, Matildas, um, A-League, NPL, New Second Division, um, and, and basically the state federation um, competitions as well. So we have, a, we have a lot of content that could be consumed and potentially could be monetized. And I think there's enough um, emerging technologies that aren't that new that now enable the reduction of some of those costly exercises of, uh, or costly um, processes, for instance, the production of a game, um, depending on how many cameras, you know, we've, we've, we've had lots of numbers float around what it costs Fox to produce a game with an outside broadcast, everything from $125,000 to $80,000. So let's pick a number in the middle and say it costs them hundred grand to produce an A-League game. We know that we can now do that pretty um, inexpensively and still produce a high-quality product that we could then simply on-sell to a KO uh, or a streaming service or have our own uh, OTT on Netflix platform, if you like. So I do think there's a real opportunity to use the technology that's floating around in the world these days to, to allow that, um, to shift the game forward, fully engage with our fan base and player base, and see whether they want to engage with us at a value that, that could be determined based on the appetite that they had. But I'd suggest that that's a better path to go because ultimately we would be building a solid asset and, and, and for the first time, the FFA would have an asset that I'd suggest that in five years' time would be something that somebody would partner with or acquire or we retain ourselves. Um, and then you've got control of how your asset's presented. Uh, but you're probably more importantly, you're getting to know who is consuming and what are they consuming. And therefore, that's really valuable information for uh, sponsors and for the, the game and marketing. Mm-hmm. And just to engage with the dem- different demographics. At this stage, we do really don't have any of that information. That information sitting around in lots of databases around the country. Uh, the TV numbers we get reported back through, which we know are rubbery. Um, you know, so the, for the first time, the game could sort of look in the mirror and say, we, we, we're building an asset. We're, we're talking to our fans and our engaged um, supporters. Um, we're just simply not going for theater goers. We're really dealing with raw, you know, good quality data to make some really good decisions. And I, I would suggest that in five years' time that the, the value of that asset um, to, if we did it right, and, and we have every opportunity to do it right because we are not handing over the keys to a media organization who may or may not be that interested in how they portray a display and communicate our game. So I think there's a massive opportunity to do all that. The challenge that we have is that the A-League clubs being in the situation that they're in, obviously with, with uh, pretty much losses every year for the last 15 years, um, some of the clubs are better, you know, can handle that better than others. But ultimately, the temptation might be just to take whatever amount of money is on the table and therefore give away those rights. And I'm, I'm hopeful that um, uh, James Johnson, who I, you know, I have a lot of faith in, and I, I believe... Um, he obviously needs some help to get this over the line, but 
you know, for the betterment of the game overall, I, I do think that we need to control that asset and build that, um, control the content and therefore build up an asset which would be um, a bit like money in the bank over a long period of time. So it's something we might call FFA TV, for example. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and the type of thing that you're talking about. Uh, the issue of stickiness of supporters is a really interesting one. I remember many, many years ago now, over a decade ago, having a, an argument <laughs> with a, another former colleague of ours, John O'Sullivan, who when A-League crowds were doing pretty well, um, he tried to put the point to me that this was, going, this was as good as it gets and that really there was no other further potential for football to progress much beyond those 2008-9 um, peaks. Um, I think it's a really good point you make that we don't know about the stickiness of our supporters. Can you talk about, and those 2 million people that that keep getting quoted at us, but bearing in mind that only approximately 535,000 are actually registered players, um, the other 1.5 million are people who are out in the park playing the game um, but are not necessarily affiliated or registered as part of the game. What types of things would, for instance, having an FFA TV for want of a better name, um, how, how, could, how could we help in measure that stickiness? What, what is the technology that helps us measure that stickiness better and, and perhaps uh, engage and retain those supporters? Well, the, the basic technology run, that runs on OTT means that um, people have to sign in either by uh, mobile phone identification or email identification. So you actually understand who is actually watching. Um, so therefore, you've got direct access and you can be looking at the data on a real-time basis as to not just how many eyeballs are watching. So it's, it's, it's quite different from streaming on Facebook or streaming on YouTube. Um, uh, you, you, you are ultimately, if you think about it as change, you know, rub out the word Netflix and, 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 and put FFA TV, that's effectively what it is. Now, Netflix know every one of the subscribers. The sort of AI technology that's now available they, um, um, to, to really mix and match stuff would, for instance, see in a, in a feed if we had FFA TV, we've got the potential technology to say if, if you are someone who puts an alert in and says, I only want to watch the last 10 minutes of any games where it's 1-0 um, to either side, then you would get a prompt coming through from FFA TV to say, hey, switch on, Bonnie, because there's three or four exciting games here um, that you would want to watch. So you can put in as many triggers as you want, but the key thing being is that you have to register. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're registering and paying nothing, ultimately you could uh, you could then monetize that uh, you know after the event. Um, but the live streaming through any OTT um, allows you to get direct access to that information. And I don't think we've ever had that information. And that information is very powerful to be able to make sure that you target the right content towards the people who actually want it. Now that could go right down to the grassroots basis of, of, of you know if if in fact. Ultimately, the world is changing to the point that, you know, in, in five years' time, every ground that we currently know, certainly NPL level and probably the level below that, will have fully automated cameras at the grounds. Those, those cameras will follow the play. And therefore, that if it's following the play, they could be automatically streamed. So it could be an under-14 trial that somebody's watching. So it could have scouting capabilities. It could be mums and dads that just want to come in and have a look. It might be a country... Um, football club that wants to simply produce it as a, as a streaming service because you know they want to be able to show the local butcher and local real estate agent and, and so so we have we have the ability to carve this all the way down to 
to it, a bit like um, ground signage around the outside of the oval or the outside of the ground um, and monetize that and allow the localized participation of that on screen with some smart graphics that can be fully automated. Um, we can also then look at, you know, if, if uh, you know, little Harry scores the best volley and his dad's going to get a pie, you know, he could replay that and, and, and potentially shoot and give that footage to the parents or whoever wanted to look at it or put it in his highlights reel. Now, if we don't own our content and we haven't got you know, access to that, so I think, we're, I think we've got so much coming and there's so much that can enable today without risk because ultimately what we've done is we've handed the product and the keys away to be presented in whatever way that we uh, we have no control over or very little say over how Fox, for instance, would want to control that. Now, that means that ultimately we could be streaming any level of football anywhere across the country through FFA TV and either charge or give it away for free. Um, but for the first time ever, we'd actually know the behavior of our participants. We'd know the behavior of our, whether it's 2 million or 550,000 and whether they have got an actual appetite to consume the game at what levels. And from there, you then would then decide on what value you would put in and the, and the cost of the quality of the production that you would want to produce. So, you know, if there's only 20,000 people watching the top A-League game, then you can't possibly be doing a 14-camera shoot with all the various uh, bells and whistles. But a good example of that would be, that, you know, if the average is 100,000 to produce an A-League game, last year's Victorian NPL Grand Finals with three games on the, on the weekend on that day um, cost about 8,000 to shoot. So that's a mm. that's a big Huge number. Difference. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we go back to eight thousand dollars, but it is doable for that, by the way. But, yeah. but let's let's put it somewhere in the middle. But let's make sure that if, in fact, the potential audience that we know is going to watch a certain game, um, then we shouldn't be gearing up with a uh, hundred thousand plus production. Now, the challenge we've currently got right now is that the, you know, the A-League is potentially so desperate that they're going to take a deal of however much money is going to be handed to them. And therefore, that may mean that we don't produce the content ourselves necessarily. Um, I don't think we'll be paying as much for production because I think everybody's going to take a haircut on, on all of the processes here. But ultimately, we're probably not going far enough and we're not controlling the content. Uh, now, ideally, if we did that and we delivered the content, we could then sell the content off to whoever we wanted to. Live stream it. You still go do a clean feed to Kale. Uh, um, you could do a clean feed to whoever else wanted all around the world. And I, I would think the aggregation of selling those rights off in you know a two, five, ten million dollar lots, um, and as we built up that consistent content with a good quality production, um, the the asset we're building up, as I, as I keep saying, is, is pretty substantial. And you are in control of your content, therefore you are in control of how it's displayed, the communication messages, um, the key elements that you want to drive through the place. Um, there's an ad platform already built in. There's a fully automated graphics package that a number of other sports are using. That we're using it ourselves in the NPL um, here nationally with the NPL TV. Um, there's an ad, ad platform there that currently can be monetized that hasn't really been monetized in any serious way. Um, which I think sponsors will jump at once we've got the the level of uh, um, broadcast that we that we potentially can have and some level of acceptance to start delivering that. So there's there's a number of things we're leaving on the table. Which you know again this this notion that there's no, there's no money in football, but 
we, we tend to squeeze the lemon once and then throw it away. And I, and I think it's time to actually have a look at those workflow processes and decide on how we can prevent the leakage and prevent really the game. The game loses a lot of money in different ways that people benefit from that aren't directly related to either FFA or the federations or the clubs. So I think there's a, there's a lot of spillage. And I think that's time. Part of this would bring that spillage back in and, and help to monetize the game. It would also help bring the game together, surely. I mean, it's got enormous potential to do that. Plus, of course, you know, if you're looking at running something like your own Netflix, and let's call it FFA TV, you could do things such as have magazine-style programs, you know, um, about the game and, and aspects of the game. So there's so much other potential there if only the A-League chairman sort of don't jump at the first offer that they made. Um, let's hope. I, I do know from having spoken with a couple of them that, they're very conscious of the fact that the I think it was the um, Sydney Derby not long before not long before the game was shut down because of COVID. Um, it got approximately thirty five thousand on Fox, but it got two hundred and forty thousand on the Telstra streaming app. So you know clearly they must realise there is that potential there. We can only hope that they're yeah, listening. I, well, I, I think so. I, ho- I hope so. And look, I, there, are, there are enough smart guys who run good businesses in there who, who are passionate about football. This is not about, you know, uh, I mean, you, you know, this is not about bashing football. or well, This is actually about saying this is an, an incredible opportunity to reset things based on a number of things that are going on, you know, a, a number of financial things that are going on. Um, you know, we, we have to reduce the cost of play. Ultimately, this is about the cost of playing for kids. Reducing that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, if 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 this is this is not rhetoric to try and politically manoeuvre something. This is actually saying that currently, you know, we get belted every time on opposition code, um, and that's only the public building. So I suggest that the you know the the, the sort of uh, uh, discreet um, backhanders we get would be when a coach is going and talking to a mum and dad in, you know, in Queensland or New South Wales or Victoria and saying, hey, bring your kid and play AFL, son, because, you know, we'll, you can play for free. And here's, here's a kit bag and, a, and a, a bottle and a da 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 and come to five training sessions with Nathan Buckley or whoever you want. So we, we, we get smacked all the time on that basis because the alternative is if the kid's good enough at football in an NPL system, we know it's somewhere about two and a half grand he has to pay just to play NPL. If he's then good mm. enough to get picked for a state a state team, he has to pay well, more money. Double that and double that again. So it's un, mm. you know, and I've, I've had enough family members who've gone through that process. It's probably a ten grand a year contribution from a family to if your kid is in the rep system and, yeah. and has got any potential. So that is sh- surely that is cutting off the sort of players that we're getting. And having been involved in AFL and, and had a look at and how passionate some of the AFL players are about the game and how much they watch it and, and they play FIFA, you know, on the, on the Xbox and, and that's what they're playing. They're not playing anything else. They're not playing AFL on it. So you've got an engaged, competitive athlete, high-level athlete who loves the game, watches the game, would probably love to be playing for his country and yet... We have uh, made it as almost very difficult for them uh, and easy for the, compete, the competing codes to um, you know, hit us with a pretty much solid body blow very early on, which is a, a cost to play in the game. So as an administrator, when we look at the leakage that I, you know, I would suggest is in the game and you look at the cost, the structure that we've got, just the, just the state structure, and I think you've, you know, you've written a, um, a couple of articles about that and, and we've, all, we've all known what those costs are. But I don't think anybody knows how to unpick that. But the bottom line is there's 60-odd million a year in costs around the country that could 
half of that could be deployed, I would think, towards better things, you know, and, and this might be the time to do that. So I think, you know, that's where administrators should be saying to themselves, how do I wake up every morning and reduce the cost of a kid playing my game? And, and are the things that I'm doing and are my board objectives and my objectives, if it's state-based or national-based, surely two or three of these main KPIs in running this business, and it is a business to a certain degree, um, although it's got lots of emotion attached to it, surely the measurements are around how do I make the game affordable for every professional young budding athlete who wants to play football? Um, and and, and if, if, then, if you want to see the Socceroos and the Matildas go up the ranks enormously, then it has to start there, uh, where and kids increasing the talent pool that we have available. Yeah, we have amazing yeah. athletes in this. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've had conversations with lots of people over the years, and let's let's go back to, you know, I mean, we we turned up to play to play Uruguay with Buddy Franklin playing centre forward, you know, and Jonathan Thurston playing right wing, and Cyril Rioli feeding off Buddy or whoever you want to pick. You know, um, <laughs> there's lots of rugby league players, lots of union players, but none of them are choosing to play our game for different reasons. Um, but we have enough talent, athletic talent pool in this country that I would suggest that that, that would improve the Socceroos and the Matildas in a, in a significant way um, if, in fact, the pathway was opened up and the costs weren't so prohibitive so early on. And and I do think the other codes use that as a competitive edge against us. And, and yet, as oh, a federation, absolutely. We, we've never done it, you know. Uh, our Indigenous, um, you know, or, or if you like, our commitment towards the Indigenous um, players has been uh, nothing short of a disgrace um, in terms of, and yet they are probably, um, they are the ideal <laughs> players for our game or the blend that we, you know, we need. And we, we know that. I mean, we know the best players in the world aren't, uh, tend not to be six foot five. You know, they're useful in certain positions, but, you know, that quick, short twitch muscle uh, skills control and if you see what some of this so I think there's so many opportunities in some of this and that's not just a that's not just a nice thing to do the fact is that if we had a indigenous program running for the last 30 years uh, you know we would probably have some of those um, great players that are playing AFL and and, uh, and NRL um, playing our game and and I dare say basketball as well. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly the point that Professor John Maynard makes. Um, you know, he he is the author of the Aboriginal Soccer Tribe, which Fair Play Publishing published in its second edition, and he says that straight out that no one's tried really. Um, putting aside sort of a small pocket where John Moriarty, um, you know, dealt with uh, Borodula, um, but no one's tried in reality to engage with the Indigenous community at all. And when and when push comes to shove, it's a simple issue of cost. And you know, you you talk about how um, the 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 talent pool, the competition for the talent pool, is is what other sports hold o- over us. Absolutely. If I can go back to another conversation I had with another colleague of our, ex-colleague of ours, Ben Buckley, um, he had, coming coming from the AFL, he said straight out that the one thing that the AFL guarded against with football was the competition for elite talent because they were absolutely terrified that if um, we were we were able to provide our game at the same cost as they were able to provide their game for young kids, um, that we would lose to that simply because, as you say, you don't have to be a particular size, you don't have to be a particular build, um, and for the really talented athletes, they get the chance to play internationally, which you can't possibly get in, in most of those other sports. 
Yeah, so, and at that time, at that time also, Benira, um, you know, the AFLW was was not even a thought. You know, um, I mean, we we've had, you know, we had some clear air on the Matildas for a long, long time. So I think, uh, I mean, they're they're concerned from a number of a number of factors. I think um, they understand that one, a young player who decides to play our game can play um, for a lot longer. They, they, you know, they they can play at different levels. They can play internationally. They can represent their country. They can go to the World Cup. They can go to the Olympics. They can win gold medals. They can win World Cup finals. That's all possible in our game, and and when well, they can also have a career at multiple levels. They can, you know, they they, they could go to Barcelona um, or the EPL, um, or they could end up playing, you know, in the NPL until they're thirty-five or or, or older. If they've had a good, you know, uh, full-time career or a, or a semi-pro career, so they can run careers in parallel. There's a whole range of options in our game, and, and in terms of, so I'd suggest the longevity in our game for professional, uh, a, a semi-professional or a professional athlete is much, much. Well, I know it's much longer than most of the other games, certainly than NFL and NRL, uh, because of the demands on those sports. Then, and and clearly, the last few years, this has become more of an issue. We have the injury issues within both of those games, which are, you know, not insignificant in terms of career-ending injuries, um, and and specifically to the head and spinal areas. So we have we have massive competitive advantages, in my view, from the starting point, from a kid who's starting out, and and I, and I do think that, you know, if you were sitting down with a kid um, who's getting poached to go and play AFL, and he's twelve. And he's clearly in the the NPL program, and he's clearly got some talent, and he's he, you know he's still not a given that he's going to make it. But his pathway at that age group, rather than going across and playing AFL for two or three or four years um, and getting a free kit bag and something signed and a water bottle and whatever else it is, um, and his subscription or his his um, participation for for free. Um, you know, if that was explained well, and, and again, that would have to be the local coach talking to the local mum and dad, because unless they're passionate football people, they're probably not going to realise what how, how long the kid can play as a career in in the game and for you know for for however long and earn an income, potentially get a career if he's not good enough to play full time professional as well and run in parallel and play part time. Most of which he can't do in, in those other codes. You you can't you know you you're not going to be able to do your career and play part-time um, AFL in the second division, if you like. It's just not going to happen because you'll get smashed. So it's it's such a gap between the top, their, uh, their codes and their next level down, whereas we've got everything in between. And, you know, you continue, you can continue to play until I've got friends who are playing in their 60s and 70s and they still continue to play all around the world for teams. So I think that's not explained all that well. So um, therefore, we lose that fight early on. And sometimes I think it's just a distraction to pull kids out of the talented program that we've got to make sure they do lose interest for a couple of years, get some exposure at AFL, and then they don't they don't get any further. But it's too late when they come back. They come back into the into the football swing and they're you know they've, they've lost their way never a wee bit. Yeah. yeah, we never never get them back. So I think you know I'm not saying they deliberately go out and do that, but I would suggest that that's. You know, um, it's uh, maybe it's not a com- complete tactic, an official tactic, but um, uh, I think it works. 
Archie, we could chat for ages, <laughs> but um, we, we'll have to close it off here now and come to an end for this time. But we'll have to have you back because there's so much more to talk about, which I'd love to, about competition structure and all sorts of things. But let me finish by asking you one question, which we ask everyone, and just for a lighthearted moment, what piece of music are you listening to at the moment during this COVID time? Oh, what piece of music am I listening to? Um, that's a good question. Quite uh, pretty diverse, I think. I've been I've been listening to a few, but I'm I'm certainly going back to all to the old. There's so many of those um, competitions or not competitions, those challenges floating around. So I've had a couple come through me and say, "Would you would you go back?" So I'm going back to my some of my um, uh, sort of nineties and 2000s and I'm, I'm pulling out things like uh, Style Council and a few of the old greats there so uh, I'll, I'll stick with the Style Council that'll keep Simon happy as well probably <laughs> Okay well we'll we'll close this show with a, with an excerpt from Style Council um, Archie it's always good to talk to you thanks so much for your time and we look forward to having you back sometime My pleasure, thank you Benita and that's it for Football Insiders this week. If you want to catch up on your football reading, there's no better time to do so. Head to fairplaypublishing.com.au where there are not only a range of books on Australian football history, culture, biographies, fiction and memoir, but our new Play On magazine and the back catalogue of the Football Insiders podcast. Of course, you can also find this podcast on Google Play, Apple Play, iTunes and Spotify. In the meantime... Please stay safe and keep your distance from one another. We close with a brief excerpt of Archie's Choice of Music. We'll be back next week with another Football Insiders podcast. In the meantime, thank you for listening. listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.